Good evening. Please be seated. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently studying in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, uh, just flag one of the men that are coming up the aisle right now with Bibles, and they'll hand you a Bible. It'll be marked to the passage we're studying this evening. We certainly want you to hear the Word of God, but we want you to see it with your own eyes as well. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you. We pick things up in verse 34 of of chapter 8 and a little bit about the context. Jesus has just spoken to the disciples how it is that, and Jesus is in the final portion of His three-year public ministry. He is very much headed toward the cross and uh, that uh, uh, the the events uh, that were going to occur in Jerusalem right around the corner. He warned them that he, in verse 31, is going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and then after three days rise again. Uh, You might remember that uh, Peter then uh, thought Jesus was uh, losing it here a little bit and decided that uh, that was too negative of a confession or what he had said was wrong and uh, shouldn't be saying something like that out loud in front of the deci- other disciples and demoralizing them in that way and uh, took him aside and, and rebuked him over, over what Jesus had spoken. Jesus then turned around, looked at the disciples and rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God but of the things of men. Uh, Peter, in his actions with Jesus and what he spoke to Jesus, uh, as he said, you know, far be this from you, Lord. Uh, these were not, uh, he was not thinking in a heavenly way, but he was thinking in a very carnal, uh, earthly way. And uh, what is the, you know, the height of earthly thinking is selfishness. It's self-preservation at all costs. Everything else can just go. You do whatever you have to do to get ahead, and you do whatever you have to do uh, to survive. That's the thinking of the world predominantly, selfishness, self-preservation, selfism. And that's not the way that heaven uh, thinks about things, or we would never have had a Savior die on the cross uh, for our sins. Heaven views uh, what is valuable and how a life is to be spent entirely different from how we will ever learn how to spend the life here in, in, this, uh, in this world and certainly in the culture that we live in, which is absolutely terminally addicted to uh, selfishism, that to live for self, to experience for self, selfishness exalted uh, with the idea that this is the way to, to live the most uh, satisfying uh, life. And so Peter was rebuked. And then Jesus used the opportunity, verse 34, now we come formally to what we haven't covered before. And uh, he called the, the people to himself. There were others that were around, and he called the disciples uh, as well. And then he uh, uh, declared to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him, number one, uh, deny himself. Uh, number two, take up his cross. And number three, uh, follow me. And this is famously what is re- referred to as Jesus declaring the cost of discipleship. Uh, to the disciples. We can't think like men. We can't think like the world. We have to think uh, the way that God wants us to think in order to, to follow Him. I was, uh, I'm very thankful. I know we all have our own 
uh, salvation story, and we all come to the Lord our own way. And whatever era we come to know the Lord in and move forward, the, the path for discipleship, the path to grow in the Lord, to become great for the kingdom of God in whatever kind of context that, uh, that we get saved into. But uh, when Karen and I got saved and going with the Lord back in 1980, the, uh, the Jesus movement was in full swing at that time. And one of the advantages of that time is that this was just, at least in the church that we were attending, this was not even in dispute, what Jesus declares here. This was something that every single Christian we knew, every single person in the church was completely abandoned here, a desire to follow after Him, to deny themselves, take up their cross, and then to follow Him at whatever the cost. And I don't think we're in that kind of an environment anymore spiritually. God is uh, in the United States, God is certainly saving people, and, uh, and that's wonderful. But what it does for us is when you get saved into a spiritual environment or atmosphere, like I think Christians get saved in today, into today in the United States, you have to be careful to look at the Scriptures and say, I'm not only going to live up to the standard that I see in people around me as representing kind of normative Christian uh, behavior and what it means to be a disciple of the Lord, but I'm going to look at the Scriptures myself, and I do not want a self-determined, self-defined Christianity. But I, when I see what is in the Scriptures is not largely represented in the era in which I'm getting saved in, then I'm not going to dumb down to what's around me, but I am going to make the Scriptures the standard for the life that I seek. And I think that anybody who gets saved today has to do certainly more of that than Karen and I did back in 1980 when we got saved in, in Northern California. He talks here about whoever desires to come after me. And that's uh, the invitation is, if anybody has a desire uh, to go where I go in life, Jesus is talking. We want to live the life of Christ. We want to go where He goes, do what He does in those environments, say what He would say in those environments, to be His representative anywhere that we go in the world. And so the, the passage, it challenges us, is that, is that even my thinking is that the standard in my life for my Christian life? I want to go anywhere He goes, and I want to go anywhere He sends me. And then when I go into that environment, I want my life to be what He has called me to be as a Christian in this environment. And, and to long for that, to want that, that this is the, that is the Christianity that I want to experience because this is what Christianity is. And so Jesus says, you want to go, come after me? You want to really, really follow me? Then here's what it's going to mean. And not just to Christians in the United States, but the Christians in Nairobi, or the Christians in Colombia, or in Moscow, or wherever we might find ourselves. But this is what's required in order to come after Jesus and to follow Him any time in human history and anywhere in the world. And the first thing that he declares here is that a person must uh, let him deny himself. 
And I think this, it requires a denial of self to do it for the simple reason that, 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 where, that where, where my desires, where my selfish desires in me will take me in life is a completely different place than where Christ will take me in life. And so it's important to just purposely, deliberately refuse to elevate my own self-will above the will of God for my life, above not even one single commandment in the Word of God that I look at and say, I am choosing as an act of my self-will to live in disobedience to that. To deny myself is to say, this is the standard for my life, my Christianity. I want to follow Him. I want to follow Him to the fullest. I want to know as mu- and experience as much as you can in this Christian life, this side of heaven. And so I choose to embrace those commandments. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, to then obey the commandments that are found uh, in the Scriptures. And then to make sure that I do not elevate my self-will above His purposes and His plans uh, for my life. And where I just develop this lifestyle of saying no to anything in my life that violates the Word of God and would mean abandoning God's will and His plan for my life. And specifically in the context that Jesus is talking about here, to abandon God's call, His plan, His will for my life because of hardship or because of suffering or because of self-sacrifice. And so this denial of self, it just means saying yes to anything that God's Word and God's will demands of me regardless of the self-denial that is required. Now that's really something. That's quite a demand. And, and the Holy Spirit will give us what is required to, to live that. And talk about sold-out Christians and this kind of thing, whatever the, the, the vernacular is. But that's, what, that's what's being talked about here. So it requires, number one, the denial of self. Self will take me one place in life. God has an entirely different plan for my life. And he says, second, that we are to uh, take up our cross. And of course, in those days, a cross was a means of crucifixion. It represented uh, death. And so taking up our cross is a picture of absolute submission to the will of God in our life and at whatever the cost. It is a willingness to say, I will follow you, I will obey you, I will fulfill the call that you have given me if it means I die in that calling and in that place. I mean, you see the the high standard that is involved in this, the sobriety with which a person that understands this uh, about Jesus' call upon our lives to realize this is very, very strong. But if I operate under self-preservation, Jesus will lead us into places in life. If self-preservation is the uppermost thing within our life, we will stop right in the middle of the path, and we will turn back, and we will never experience the fulfillment of His promises within our life from the Word of God, and will never fulfill the plan that He has uh, for our lives. And so we must take up our cross. 
And how in the world can I ever hope to follow Jesus as my example? I'm not preaching to you tonight. I am preaching to myself tonight. How in the world can I ever hope to go where Jesus goes and to do what he does when he gets there and to speak what he speaks there? How can I ever hope to experience the life of Christ, the one who came into the world and died upon the cross in fulfillment of the Father's will for his life at whatever the cost if I don't not carry the same attitude within my life? And so there needs to be the denial of self, the taking up of our cross, and then third, we must follow Him. And the idea here is that we must allow Him to take the lead, and He is to lead. He is not the co-pilot in this relationship. He is the leader in this relationship, and he, we allow Him to take the lead in our life and determine the direction of our life. Now, this is, this is serious business. This is not, uh, uh, Jesus isn't saying, now listen, if you want to be uh, part of the Navy SEALs, spiritually speaking, or the Green Beret, uh, or or some extraordinary Christian, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about just a normal Christian life as he defines it, and uh, for every single Christian. Now, uh, I think Jesus understands, of course, uh, the strength of the demands that, that this call, uh, 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 the strength of this call that He places upon each of us as Christians. And so I think He follows it up in verse 35 now with some, uh, some encouragement here. And He said, and for whoever desires to save his life, you'll lose it. You keep it under your own self-control. You make it a self-directed life. You make self uh, uh, supreme as it relates to uh, your decision-making, where you go in life. And, and he said, you'll lose your life. Because life, not existence, not existence, but life, life as God has intended life to be, a life that is meaningful, a life that has purpose, a life that has substance to it as a result. That kind of, uh, that life is found in uh, following the Lord. And and, uh, as hard as it might be, this is where true life is found. And and to, to do anything other than what he describes in verse 34 is to miss life. It is to miss life by degrees, or it is to miss it entirely, depending upon how seriously we take verse 34. Whoever desires to save his life, you want to disregard uh, these demands, I know they are hard, but you will lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the life that we have been created for. And again, you've got the clash of American culture and American philosophy and telling us where the meaning of life is found, where fulfillment is found. And and by the day, there's a greater gap between what Jesus says and our culture tells us. And Jesus comes in and says, if you buy that, you do something other than what I'm telling you here. You may live out your three score and ten, but you will miss life in its, in, in its in, entirely and, and, and miss the purpose of life. I think about it in, in this vein, the Westminster Catechism. 
uh, which asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And then the catechism answers the question, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's where life is found. That's where meaning and purpose and, and depth of existence is found in, in life. It is knowing Him. It is obeying Him. It is serving Him at whatever cost to my life to be able to do it. And it is our privilege to do it. And to move away from that is to miss the, the meaning of life altogether. And then in verse 30, uh, 36, he goes on and says, uh, for what will it profit a man if he gains the entire world and loses his own uh, soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And here Jesus warns against leaving God's will for our lives, God's plan for our lives, leaving the, the, the strict and full demands of verse 34, abandoning those things uh, for material uh, things and material gain in our life or to become uh, wealthy. And Jesus says all of the material things in the world, if, we were, if any one of us was able to want, end up owning the entire world, everything in it, uh, all of the power that goes uh, with it, uh, all of those things are not worth missing a life of obedience to God and service to God. The simplest Christian in the simplest hut in the remotest part of the earth who obeys God's commandments in his or her life and is fulfilling God's call upon their life is infinitely richer than the richest person in the world who is not in contact with those things at all. And you ha I have to stop and ask myself, do I really believe that? I do believe that. I believe that. And we have to ask ourselves that. What in the world? I mean, I think most of us have experienced in our life, I mean, the Christian life can be very hard. Serving the Lord can be very, very hard. I think in the thing that God has called me to do, that it, it, is, a, it is a long, slow, public death in front of people. And, and, and that's, that's what it is. And yet the very thought, I mean, in the hardest of times, the very thought of abandoning it out of self-preservation or to go get something else in life, I know that I would probably go eat all of the ice cream I could eat in 48 hours or whatever the splurge you might take. I'm trying to choose sanctified examples. But within 48 hours... I know I would be longing to be right back in the place of uh, whatever sacrifice is required to know Him and to walk with Him. And that's one of the beautiful things about being a Christian and having the Holy Spirit within our lives, is that once we've come to know Him, and once we've come to serve Him and then experience what happens in the dynamic between us and the Holy Spirit in that place, nothing else in the world can satisfy. It is the greatest experience you can have. And to be a Spirit-filled Christian is to, and, and a serving Christian is to be forever spoiled for ever returning back into the world. 
And that's why when Jesus spoke as he, he gave his great sermon to this great crowd that was following him in uh, John chapter 6, multitudes following him, most of them coming just for a meal ticket, and he begins to speak about eating his body and drinking his blood. In other words, I- imparting him into their life, uh, following him and, and becoming a part of his body and following him. And the crowd begins to fall away, and Jesus, as the crowd is completely, uh, in large part at least, abandoning him, he turns to the disciples. And again, in what I think is one of the most vulnerable scenes related to God in all of the Bible, he turns to the disciples and says, Will you leave me also? The rules of the whole thing, they don't change on the basis of who likes it, doesn't like it, who's willing to do it or not do it. This is what it takes to follow me. Will you abandon me also? And Peter says, where will we go? Because you have the words of everlasting life. Peter had, it it means he had thought about it, but he had already been spoiled in walking with Jesus just in that short period of time, realizing I can never go back and be satisfied. I mean, if any of us are sitting in this room here tonight and we are being tempted by the devil into a short-term or a long-term backslide, that's crazy. You will never be satisfied out there. You've been spoiled. You've been ruined. Isn't that wonderful? You've been ruined. You came to church to hear that tonight. You've been ruined by the Holy Spirit forever returning to the world and ever being happy there or ever being uh, satisfied there. And so Jesus warns here that, uh, that to, to live the life that he describes here makes us the richest people in the whole world. In verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. And, and I try, as I'm getting older, I try not to be overly critical, because I know it's a temptation uh, as, as you get a little bit uh, older. Uh, uh, but uh, as, as best as I can tell in the culture as it relates to its uh, uh, view of God and, and its uh, defiance of God's commandments and even of His existence, I mean, there's no, almost no fear of God left within uh, the culture. And yet, it's important to know in terms of the culture that we live in, the generation that we live in, it's an adulterous and a sinful generation, and it's becoming more so uh, by the day and by the week. And so he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I mean, uh, 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 amazing here. I mean, uh, uh, look at the mess that the world is in, morally, spiritually, I'm not even talking about physically on things. Look at the casualties that the philosophies of man and man's definitions of right and wrong produce every single day in this city, to say nothing of the entire uh, world. I mean, it is the world that should be ashamed of what it calls truth and what it defines as the meaning of life when it's proven uh, untrue by every single life in every single generation. Now the world, this generation should be ashamed, not God and not us of God or of His Word. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful, this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy uh, angels. 
And I think here is, is a warning against being ashamed or being bullied by the culture or intimidated uh, by, uh, by the culture, being ashamed of, of, of His words. Must never allow any of that, must never allow shame in our lives to silence us uh, or uh, the fear of man or to, to cause us to deny uh, the Lord or to cease our service uh, to Him. And then again at the very latter part of verse 38, Jesus speaks about when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. And here you have, as He's talking about the greatness of the demands that He lays out here in verse 34, here is the reminder that one day Jesus is going to return, and He is going to uh, return uh, in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And it is the reminder, and I need the reminder, that each of us as Christians, one day we will stand before the Lord and give an account for our faithfulness to the Christian life that He called us to and to the life of service that He called us to. This is not salvation that is in play. That is secured on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. This is what is known as the Bema seat, the reward seat of Christ. And, and what we do in terms of living what God has called us to in verse 34, it won't affect our salvation, but it will affect our eternal reward. And the knowledge that the Lord is going to come back one day and that I'm going to stand before Him at that beam of seat, and the longing to, to hear one thing from His lips, one day I'm going to look Jesus Christ right in the eyes. I'm going to look into the beauty of that face. And the moment I look into his eyes, there will be only one thing I will want to hear from him in that moment, and that is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And without hearing that, no Christian's life can ever be deemed to be a success. And that particular thing has kept me in the saddle in my calling many, many times when I have longed out of pure self-preservation to abandon it and go do something else. I know that if I left this calling, uh, that, uh, that I would not hear those words from him. And so I say to him, Lord, if this mess that I'm in the middle of or this is what's going on here in my life or this is the sacrifice that is required in this in order to one day hear a well done from you, then only that makes it worth it. But it does make it worth it. And so uh, Jesus here, as He talks about uh, His coming back in the glory of His Father with His holy angels, it sets the stage now for Jesus' transfiguration in, in chapter uh, 9, where three of the disciples get a, a little bit of a foretaste of heaven. And He said to them, still in this context of, of the cost of discipleship, He said, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. And then after six days from all of this, Jesus took Peter, James, and John 
and, uh, and he led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. So he takes James, Peter, and John, as he did with some regularity, apart from uh, the other nine disciples, and, uh, and they were a part of some extraordinary exposure that Jesus had uh, for them. Uh, some people look at it, and you see a lot of ministry books that talk about here, you've got Jesus, and then you've got to have, uh, you know, uh, you've got to have your 12, but then you've got to have your inner circle of the 12, and, uh, you know, the key three, and, and all this kind of uh, ideas that go on around all of this. But that's assuming that Jesus thought that Peter, James, and John were extraordinary, uh, it, it might be just as likely uh, that he said, I've got to keep these guys very close to me or they'll create all kinds of problems and the other nine are safer to leave on their own. I'm a little more, the older I get, the more inclined I am uh, to the second view. And so he takes them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. It's probably Mount Hermon, the highest mountain uh, in, in Israel, I think over nine a thousand feet. There's a, they have, actually have a ski uh, resort uh, at the top of Mount uh, Hermon in, in, uh, in, in, in Israel. And uh, so they uh, are taken up into this place. They're in the region of Galilee. The Mount Hermon is in, in that region. And, uh, and he was transfigured before them. And the, the idea of he's transfigured into his eternal glory. I mean, we're going to one day see what they saw. We are one day going to see for our, our eyes. But we, one day we will not merely see uh, just Jesus transfigured into His eternal glory, but in the context of the eternal glory of, of heaven. So He gets transfigured. They get a little taste of heaven here in, in a moment. Remember, He's taking them up there, and He's not preparing them. Now listen, this is what's going to happen. Don't freak out. It just happens. And, and, and they, uh, they see it. And his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can uh, whiten them. And so here is Mark. He's trying to say, you know, how do I describe this? You know, what they, uh, what they saw. It is, it is a light and it is a brightness that I there's nothing I can… Com All I can say is it's like this and like this, you know, in terms of a, of a, a worldly context. And, uh, and it, isn't, it, isn't that, it isn't that the light was shining on him. He was the light. He was the light. It was emanating off of him. And that's why when you read in the Revelation how it is that in in heaven one day, there won't be the need of the sun and the moon and so forth, that Jesus will constitute the light in, in heaven, in His glory. And so, here He is transfigured in, in front of them, and uh, Jesus doesn't just do this. This doesn't just occur so He can say, look what I can do, and you can't do. There's always a reason behind what Jesus is, is doing here. And, uh, and the reason becomes apparent to us very, very quickly because in verse 4 we're told that Elijah appeared to them, to Jesus, and the disciples is there, there, and Moses is accompanying uh, Elijah. And they're talking with Jesus. And Peter sees this. He wakes up, we're told in one of the other Gospels, he wakes up and he sees this. And and, and he begins talking, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. 
Now, <laughs> and, and we're told, uh, it's, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I can't imagine, number one, uh, interrupting that conversation. A conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and Peter said, Peter's going to chime in, and boy, it's good for us to be here. Be like, did somebody hear something from the, the peanut gallery? What in the world is, is that? But he's all excited, and, uh, and we're told here why he did it, verse 6, uh, because he did not know what to say, because they were greatly afraid. And what's the old saying? Uh, if you can't improve upon silence, don't. And uh, Peter continually tried to improve upon where silence was, uh, was best. And I don't put him down at all. I've done that so many times. <laughs> Guys, I wasn't going to have that back. What in the world was I, I talking about? And so they're afraid, and he speaks up. And then in light of his suggestion to build a tabernacle, uh, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, uh, it, it, all of this gets interrupted uh, by God the Father himself. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Hear ye him. And suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus uh, with themselves. And Jesus' uh, transfiguration, I, I think there's many things, reasons for it, but the, the supreme reason is here is that it reveals his superiority over Moses, over Elijah, his superiority over uh, the law and over the prophets, which is the two great uh, divisions of, of the Old Testament, as the Jews refer to them as the law uh, and, and the prophets. And it is interesting here to see that, I mean, here you've got Moses. He represents the Old Testament law. And it is nice to see that Moses finally makes it into the promised land. Uh, there had to be a wait. You remember he struck the rock a second time and misrepresented the Lord. And the Lord said, you're not going to lead them, uh, uh, lead them in. And, he, and Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. But Moses gets there ultimately uh, on, on this mount and, uh, and in this exchange uh, with Jesus. Elijah, he represents the Old Testament, uh, the, uh, the, the prophets of the, the Old Testament. And it's interesting to notice that in this discussion that's occurring between Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, that they are talking. This is not an argument. This is not a dispute. This is not some kind of a debate over who is, is the greatest uh, at all. And you notice that both Moses and Elijah are absolutely A-OK -okay with Jesus. Everything is, is, is cool, so to speak, between Moses, Elijah, and, uh, and Jesus. And the reason is, is that Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, are all about Jesus. And Moses and Elijah get that. And if Moses and Elijah had been present beyond the Mount of Transfiguration, they would have withstood the, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day or today who taught uh, th that what Jesus taught was contrary to the law and to the prophets. The volume of the book testifies of Him. 
If you expect any kind of an argument between Jesus and and, uh, Moses and Elijah one day uh, in heaven at all, uh, you'll be surprised. They are are completely uh, on the same page in terms of the fact that what they were was speaking of the Messiah to come supremely and that Jesus is that that Messiah. Now, as, as Peter here gives the suggestion to build a tabernacle, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, of course, the great mistake that he makes here is he puts Jesus on the same level as the law and the prophets, or Jesus is teaching on the same level as the law and the prophets, or Jesus on the same level of Moses and uh, Elijah. And, uh, and that was a big mistake, so great a, a mistake that God the Father himself uh, overwhelms uh, the, the scene and, and, and corrects him here. And so when, when Peter uh, comes and he, and he uh, declares that, uh, that, that to build the tabernacles, it's, he's, he's saying let's, uh, he wants to provide shelters to prolong uh, the, the experience. But he's, he's intimating an equality between Jesus and Moses and, and Elijah, and Jesus doesn't even have to correct it himself. The Father uh, corrects that and says, hear ye him. To listen to Jesus, his teaching above all the other voices in life. Whether it's Moses, whether it's Elijah, certainly the voices of all religious men and women, and certainly related to uh, the, the, the secular world. He is the great voice, but he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He, does not, he did not come to violate the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them, and, and, uh, and he is that uh, that fulfillment. He calls us to a life of holiness that is even a higher standard than what the law and, and the prophets uh, call, uh, would call us uh, to. And so Jesus is the Father's absolute pleasure uh, with, with Jesus. He is the Father's beloved Son. Whatever the attitude is on planet earth concerning Jesus in heaven, He is beloved. And now as they came down from the mountain, He commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man uh, had uh, risen uh, from the dead. And so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Uh, Following Jesus' resurrection, two of these three, Peter and John, would make mention of this great event that they were a part of on the Mount of Transfiguration in their writings. John wrote in his gospel, chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I saw His glory, he's declaring. Peter in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And when we heard this voice which came from heaven, uh, and, and we heard this voice when we, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So they make their way down uh, from the mount, and, uh, uh, and uh, they asked him, saying, why do the scribes say that Elisha must come first? So they've just, uh, or Elijah, so they've seen Elijah now, and it prompts a question in their mind related to their, 
Jewish religious uh, uh, teachings. And, uh, and so they ask, now the scribes say that Elijah must uh, come first. And Malachi had prophesied it, Malachi 4, 5. Behold, God said, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the, the great tribulation is, is over. Elijah would be sent as a, a forerunner to uh, the Messiah. The fulfillment of this, I think, is given to us in Revelation chapter 8 that describes a portion of, of the coming uh, great tribulation period uh, where it declares, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before uh, the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemy, uh, enemies. And if anyone uh, wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And uh, these also speaking of the two witnesses that will be uh, in Jerusalem witnessing uh, to Jesus during the tribulation uh, period, they have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. And as you look at the description of the powers of these two witnesses given in Revelation, uh, they very much match the ministry of Moses in terms of the plagues, and very much m match the ministry of, of Elijah with the calling down uh, of fire. Some people think that Enoch, because uh, he walked with God and was not, that he'll be the other witness because he hasn't had uh, a natural death, and, and, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll, it, it, and that he would be uh, one of the witnesses, but I'm inclined to believe that it will be Elijah and Moses. Uh, based upon the description. But God had said that related to the coming of Messiah that, that Elijah must come first. And Jesus answered, and He said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming uh, first and restores all things. And how is it uh, written concerning the Son of Man that He must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it was written uh, of him. And so, uh, he, he's speaking of the fact that uh, Elijah will come, the Elijah of the Old Testament. He will come at a future date, but not related to Jesus' first coming, but His second coming. The prophecy will be fulfilled in Malachi in Jesus' second coming. But he declares that there is kind of a shadow fulfillment in the person of John the Baptist, and that's who he's referring to when he said Elijah has already uh, come. And, uh, and John the Baptist, of course, very much like uh, Elijah in his ministry. Uh, Elijah preferred to be alone and, and carrying a message of repentance. This was very much like John the Baptist's uh, ministry. And uh, even when, uh, when John the Baptist, his, his birth, his conception was uh, foretold his father, Zacharias, uh, while he's uh, in, inside of the uh, the uh, doing his service there in the temple is is one of the priests and uh, and the angel declares to him concerning the son that he would give birth to he, he and his wife Elizabeth uh, and they had been barren up to this point 
And uh, speaking of John the Baptist, he said, he will also go before him. That is the Lord speaking of John the Baptist. He will go before him, uh, really Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias then said to the angel, how shall I know this for I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in, a, 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 in years? And that's a question he wished he could have uh, back because he ended up uh, being unable to speak until the birth uh, of, of John the Baptist. And so this discussion that went on concerning uh, Elijah. And, and when he had come uh, to the disciples now, the nine who were down at the base of the mountain, he saw a great multitude had gathered around them. And the scribes were gathered around them as well, uh, disputing with them. And the scribes are, are the religious leaders, a, a sect of the religious leaders of the Jews. They're disputing with them, probably out of their inability to cast out a demon, as we'll see here uh, in just a moment. And immediately as this entire crowd of people are around the nine, uh, nine apostles or disciples, as soon as they saw Jesus coming, immediately uh, all of the people were greatly amazed. They started to run toward Him, and they greeted Him. And He asked the scribes, He said, what are you discussing with them? That is, with the disciples. And then uh, one of the crowd, before he could get an answer, uh, the one in the crowd answered, and He said to Him, teacher, I brought my uh, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and, uh, and, whatever, uh, w and wherever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. And so I spoke to your disciples that they should cast out the demon associated with this, but they could not. Now, Matthew's gospel uh, uh, refers to the physical condition that this, uh, this son had as being epilepsy. And, it, and it, uh, it, literally, it's moonstruck in the original language. But it certainly has the characteristics of, of uh, epilepsy. But epilepsy is not the young man's uh, sole problem. He has epilepsy or some kind of a disease like that, but on top of it, he is demon-possessed. Now, that, that's, that's misery. That's, that's a hard, hard life. And so they he said, I, I brought my son to your disciples with the intention that they would cast this demon out, but they could not. And Jesus answered the Father, and He said, uh, answered uh, him, and I think speaking to the disciples by and large here, He said, O faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought uh, the, young, the son uh, to Jesus, and when he saw him, immediately the Spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground. And he's wallowing on the ground, foaming uh, at the mouth. Now, uh, now we get an idea of maybe what uh, froze up the disciples in, in not casting out the demon. They became so uh, overwhelmed by uh, the power and the destructiveness of Satan, the stronghold, the clear stronghold that Satan had in, in this, this boy's uh, life, probably an adult. But, uh, and, and so here's this awful picture to, to see. And, 
And so he, he, the demon begins to convulse him at, in the presence of Jesus, and so he uh, asked the, the boy's father, he said, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And, and often uh, he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Uh, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, it's a, it's a, you, you put yourself in the, the place of this father, and I mean, the desperation and, and heartbreak and all, it's impossible to put into words. You just have to put yourself in his place. And so he's not a theologian. He's not a, a wordsmith. He's not a scribe. He's just saying what he can say. But he does make a mistake here. And he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, um, he might have been uh, better off saying, if you're willing. Uh, there's no doubt about Jesus' ability to take care of the situation. Uh, it's only a matter of willingness here. But, but he, he uses the wrong word. He's very far from, from a, a commendable faith here. I certainly don't criticize him uh, for it. But, but he's casting doubt a, a upon not only Jesus' disciples' ability to, to, to rectify or help in the situation, but even uh, Jesus' ability. But he asks, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and, and help us. Here's the, here's the plea of an entire family for a son. And Jesus then said to him, if you can believe. Uh, so, uh, now he turns the question back on him. You say, if, uh, if you can do anything, Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And I don't think he's poking him in the eye over a lack of spirituality in his life. He just wants him to know that when his son is ultimately delivered of this demon, that uh, his faith has, has played a, a part in, uh, in moving the heart of God here uh, to, to accomplish uh, this. And immediately the father of the child cried out, and he said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place as a Christian in an awful, 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 terrible trial, and you look at it and you say, Lord, I believe, and then help me with a part of me that doesn't believe. One of the hard things about trials and especially the big ones in our life, and especially the ones that are so big that we've never hit them before in our lives, is that when we hit those kind of trials in our life because we have no uh, history with them yet, we have no track record with them yet, we haven't yet processed them in the light of the Word of God, we're in the middle of processing them uh, at the moment, uh, that takes a little bit of time. In other words, here's a situation where I'm hitting it for the very first time in my life, and I can pretend that I have all belief and no unbelief in the light of what I'm facing. But I've never faced anything like this before. I've never had to go back to my Bible in the light of this circumstance and find out what does it say to a person like me in this situation to do and how to view it. We're still getting our minds around it, still getting our spirits around it. And then the Lord gets us there, 
And, and, and then there shouldn't be unbelief after that. That now becomes a sinful unbelief. But that's not where this guy is at. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him uh, no more. It's interesting that Jesus not only demands the demon to come out of uh, the Son, out of, uh, of, of the, the, the Son of, of the Father, but then He adds the command and enter Him no more. It's so important. If, you ever, if, uh, if you're ever in a situation where God uses you to deliver a demon out of a person who is demon-possessed, uh, once that happens, the next most important thing that needs to happen in that situation is that that person now receives Christ as their Savior so that the Holy Spirit now comes into their life who is the lone protection against ever being demon-possessed again. Greater is He that is in us than he that's in the world. And that's why Jesus gave that, uh, spoke in, in the teaching about a demon being possessed out of a person, and if they don't uh, have God now come into their life and that life become the residence of God, then the demon is cast out, he floats around doing whatever, comes back to the life and sees that the life is still unoccupied. And so he goes and gets seven demons as bad as he is and re-enters into the man, and, uh, and, and his latter portion is worse than, than his former portion. And so the importance of, of being born again related to, to all of this. And then the Spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him, and he became as one uh, dead, and, uh, so that many said, he's dead. And the, the, the picture is, is so painted so beautifully for us. You've got this thrashing. You've got the convulsing that is going on. And finally, he falls in a heap on the ground, and everybody thinks he's dead. Uh, just the exhaustion of, of his own physical condition, and then, and, and then uh, having a demon cast out of him. And then one of the many pictures of the tenderness of Jesus, Jesus then not dealing with him from a distance. He went to the young man, and he took him by the hand, and he lifted him up. And with that, he was able to uh, arise. And when he had come into the house, the disciples asked him, saying privately, uh, why uh, could we not cast uh, that demon out? And so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So the disciples are genuinely confused, and we'll stop here tonight, but they're genuinely confused because you remember earlier in Jesus' public ministry, He sent them out to preach the gospel and to heal and to cast out demons. And you remember they came back, and they weren't alone, and they came back to Jesus and reported, we preached the gospel, we healed people. Uh, we cast out demons in your name. God was doing it through us. So now they come into this situation, and they can't do now, uh, probably tried to do everything they had done previously in, in what we'll call their, their deliverance ministry, and here it doesn't work. 
and they're confused about that. I mean, they wanted to deliver the, the son as much as anyone wanted to deliver, uh, deliver the, uh, the, the demon uh, out of him. And Jesus, uh, again, this kind can come out uh, by nothing but prayer and by fasting. And of course, uh, demons are simply fallen angels, and they have a lot of different high uh, rankings in the same way that our military has high rankings. There's powers, there's principalities, and apparently the demon, for whatever reason, the demon that was in this boy was a high-ranking demon and, and, uh, and, and required extraordinary measures in order for that demon to be cast out, that it wouldn't be just with a word, but it had also to be coupled up with, with prayer and, and also with fasting. So it, it, you look at this and you say, well, listen, I mean, what's the likelihood I'm going to need this instruction? Oh, you don't know. Not in a world we're living in. You don't know. And if you ever end up in a situation where there's you or two or three or four other people, and in Jesus' name, here's a person who is clearly demon-possessed and throwing the rest of you around like rag dolls, and you demand that this demon uh, vacate in the name of uh, Jesus, and, and that demon does not give, away, give way immediately, and you say, well, what do we do? We just give up as a Christian in that situation. And the teaching shows us here that, no, that's not what we do. What we do is we back up and we now involve other Christians perhaps, but we begin to involve a larger prayer involvement in this situation and then fasting on top of it. So this becomes our great spiritual focus rather than eating. And the demonic realm will have to give way. And Jesus, just as a part of his discipling of them, let them know sometimes you're going to run into demons that are like this, and it's not going to be a 30-second or three-minute issue. It's going to take a lot longer. And, uh, and, and it makes us think, I, I think, in terms of certainly if, if prayer and fasting are something that is uh, effective against the demonic realm related to uh, demon possession, then it is certainly something that is uh, powerful in our lives related to any kind of spiritual warfare or oppression that comes against us or against our family. It wasn't uh, that long ago where, um, you know, Karen and I, and, uh, and I'm sure many of you did as well, felt, sensed a, a tremendous spiritual assault, a demonic assault upon this church family. And, uh, and we'd never done it before. And, uh, and Karen made contact with a, a large group of women within the fellowship and uh, that was a part of an immediate kind of prayer team that, that she could involve. And uh, for a long, long period of time, months, uh, longer than months, a given day of the week was given over to prayer and fasting uh, related to breaking off this attack upon this body. And, uh, and God honored that. So it's not just demon possession, but we recognize if, if it's powerful in the realm of demon possession, it'll be powerful in all spiritual warfare. The importance of prayer, the importance of fasting, and then the importance when we feel like we are involved in something that is bigger than even us, than pulling other people that we know 
are people who will pray and will fast and then to make them a part of the team to resist whatever it is that's happening within the demonic realm. But ultimately, he must give way. Let's stand together now and ask the worship team to come up and and prepare to close us in a final song. And